When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Today's episode is brought to you by Ashley Store, the store that you know for their luxury pieces at accessible prices. But did you know that they also have a new leather collection? From sofas to recliners, these stylish premium quality leather pieces are built with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley Store, for the love of home. So Christy and I just looked at a letter, a little insight into Jim Lewis. It was to the federal prosecutor in the fraud case. Oh, May 26th. During our investigation, Christy and I got our hands on a letter from James Lewis. A confidential law enforcement source let us read it. When Lewis wrote this letter, it had been almost eight months since the Tylenol murders. Lewis had just been found guilty of mail fraud. That scheme in Kansas City where he was putting up fake mailboxes to steal credit cards. At the time, he was in a federal detention center because he was also awaiting trial for attempted extortion. The trial was scheduled for fall 1983, about five months away. James Lewis was still James Lewis. He couldn't stop and wouldn't stop writing letters. He picked up his pen and wrote another letter. In May 26th of 1983, Jim Lewis writes a letter to the federal prosecutor in Kansas City. And, and basically, what does he offer him, Christy? In the fraud case, he offers to help him solve crimes because he has great knowledge in doing so. So he sends this letter basically saying, I want to help you solve all kinds of crimes, including credit card fraud, which he has been involved with right. in other. And, I mean, perhaps I am wrong, but I do feel my skills and experiences may be of some use to the Department of Justice. Let's pick some of our favorites. Okay. White-collar crime, land fraud schemes, cutting hair, human and animals. It says he's been to the, they have expertise in, in cake decorating from the Wilton School. And um, they are willing to live under assumed identities, which is also something they have experience with. He's basically telling the feds, hey, I'm a convicted crook. Let me help you catch other convicted crooks. I doubt that you need to be reminded of our skills since you already have an extensive file on us. Any case, please observe the attached. Signed, James William Lewis. Signed his real name. We can't confirm if Lewis actually mailed this letter. Or if it was found by law enforcement at some point later. But we do know that James Lewis offering to help solve crimes is a pattern. Because after he gets convicted in the extortion case, he offers to help solve the Tylenol murders.
I'm Stacy St. Clair. And I'm Christy Gutowski. This is Unsealed, The Tylenol Murders. Episode 6, Walking Crime Wave. By spring 1983, the Tylenol murders seemed like they were fading into the public memory. Tylenol, the product, made a huge comeback. It shot right back up to being the highest-selling painkiller in America, this time with a tamper-resistant seal and cap. The Tylenol task force still hadn't charged anyone in the killings. Ty Fainer, the attorney general accused of politicizing the task force, lost his election. And he went on to a successful private practice. There were only about a dozen members of the Tylenol task force left. Just a few of them were FBI agents. The Tylenol investigation was now mostly state police with far fewer resources. There was no resolution in the murders. Families without answers. No one was held accountable for the deaths of seven victims. But James Lewis had been identified as the writer of the extortion letter. An attempted extortion is a federal crime. There was at least some closure in that case. We're going to tell you the story of it in three chapters. Chapter 1. Doodling. By October 1983, it was time for Lewis's attempted extortion trial. When Lewis was identified as the author of the uh, extortion note, then that came to me. Dan Webb was a U.S. attorney in Illinois at the time. When you're a U.S. attorney running an office like the big U.S. attorney across America, no U.S. attorney tries cases. We're administrators, and we're not supposed to be trial lawyers. We spoke with him in his office overlooking the Chicago waterfront. He had a habit of gesturing with his coffee cup while he talked. But my addiction as to trial work is so powerful. And when this case came up for trial, I wanted to be in the courtroom to show the public that this matters. He's got a reputation, both now and back in 1982, for being almost unstoppable in a courtroom. And number two, I like rebuttal arguments. I like the chance to get up and wail. Over the course of his career, Webb tried more than 100 jury cases, including prosecuting high-profile cases like Jesse Smollett and Admiral John Poindexter in the Iran-Contra affair. When it came to this case, Webb thought the evidence that proved that Lewis wrote the extortion letter was overwhelming. What was your first thought when you read the letter? Well, the letter on its face said that the person who wrote that letter was the Tylenol killer. Webb believed it was possible that Lewis did more than write the letter. The person who wrote the letter made it clear that he could arrange for the killings to stop. So that was a huge deal. It seemed to Webb that the extortion letter writer was saying that they had information about the Tylenol murders. But this was not a trial about the murders. It was a trial for attempted extortion. And that's all that Webb could prove in court. But Webb didn't have to prove that Lewis wrote the letter. Because Lewis's own lawyer, in his opening statement, acknowledged that Jim wrote it. 
the attorney called the letter vile and foolish and reckless, but said that Jim wrote it to expose an alleged crime, not commit one himself. According to his lawyer, Lewis wrote the letter to expose the actions of Fred McKay, the owner of Lakeside, the business Lewis's wife worked for in 1982. Lewis wanted to point authorities to him, but Lewis never intended to get any of the money, his lawyer said because the bank account number in the letter wasn't Lewis's account, and the bank account was closed. You have exactly 60 seconds to capture a jury's attention. Webb didn't buy Lewis's defense. I wanted the jury to know this was an awful thing that he did. I mean, seven families lost a loved one, and he decided to take advantage. He was trying to get even with somebody. For him to take advantage of the horrific nature is just an awful thing that he did. Webb wanted the jury to remember that. And the jury, I think, came in in two hours with a verdict, or it was a pretty short verdict. James Lewis was convicted of attempted extortion. Now it was just a matter of time before he would be sentenced to prison. But while he was waiting, Lewis decided to do something. Odd. After we convicted him, he reached out to us in federal law enforcement, and he wanted to help us solve the crime. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brands Park American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Today's episode is brought to you by Ashley Store. The store that you know for their luxury pieces at accessible prices. But did you know that they also have a new leather collection? From sofas to recliners, these stylish premium quality leather pieces are built with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley Store, for the love of home. So shortly after his conviction, FBI agent Lane, I was out conducting more leads on the Tylenol investigation and I come back and there's a a note for me that James Lewis had called me and wants to speak to me. Earlier, we talked about the letter Lewis wrote to a prosecutor in Kansas City after he was convicted of mail fraud in spring of 1983. And now here he was again this time in the fall of 1983, convicted of another crime, reaching out to law enforcement, offering to help them investigate the Tylenol murders while he was awaiting sentencing. He was um, seeking attention, as well as trying to learn more about the investigation. It was explained to me one time that a, a person who had this personality would say, I'm tired of talking about me. Why don't you talk about me for a while? 
And that's kind of the personality that we were dealing with here. It seemed that Lewis took a liking to FBI Special Agent Lane. For Lane, it echoed something from the original profile of the Tylenol killer. Why do you think Lewis gravitated toward you? Well, they said he would gravitate to somebody who wore a blue suit, a red tie, and would have uh, gray hair. Now, I didn't have gray hair, but I always wore the blue suit and the red tie. I mean, he knew me from the trial. Lane was at the prosecution table during Lewis's trial with Webb, Assistant U.S. Attorney Jeremy Margolis, and others. Did you wear the blue suit and red tie on purpose? No, that's just what I normally wore. So it was coincidental. So Lane took Lewis up on his offer. U.S. Attorney Dan Webb approved of these interviews. Lewis offered his assistance uh, in our continued work on the investigation. Jeremy Margolis was also part of these meetings. Here's how he remembers it. Basically said he's a really smart guy. He understands how the federal government works. Got a lot of time on his hands. He'd be happy to help us. Maybe, they thought, given the chance to talk, Lewis would shed light on the Tylenol murders, help them solve the crime. And we said, hey, great. Never turned down the help. Margolis, Lewis, and Lane met a handful of times. And you'll know, because I'm sure you've got the records, how many times we met with them, but we had two meetings, maybe three. I can't recall exactly. I think Roy said almost five. He was brought over again to the FBI office. And we started out talking about what motivates this person, how we could transport it, where did he get it, and how did he pack capsules. Lewis waived his right to have an attorney present. So the first meeting we had was he explained why he wasn't the Tylenol poisoner. And I just took notes. But at the end of it, he goes, I think I can help you in the investigation. And I'd like to see the files and and everything that you've done, the computer files. And I said, this is going to be a hard sell here, Jim. One minute they think you're the, the Tylenol poisoner. And uh, you want me to put you on the investigation with us. They said they didn't give Lewis any files, but they did give him time to talk. We had hours and hours and hours of conversations where he would speculate as to how the Tylenol killer might have done it. And, and how long did these sessions last? Probably an uh, hour and a half, two hours. Lane and Margolis had a strategy. It was based on what FBI profilers told them. One of the things that we were told was the entire time that this person is talking to you, he is fantasizing about the crime or some parts of the crime. And if you can find the right trigger mechanism, he can have a psychotic leak, is what they called it. He will blurt out what he's fantasizing about. And that's how we worked on our interview technique, is trying to figure out how to get him to have that psychotic leak. With the right trigger, the suspect might accidentally say something incriminating. 
What were some of the things you tried? Okay. They call it a bank shot. Like a basketball bank shot? Yeah, like basketball. No, pool. Oh, oh pool. Where, where you'd say like, you know, he would turn. They to tried to play oh, into Lewis's personality. Okay, a bank shot. It means this type of person. You can't ask a direct question. You can't say, did you do this or... So instead, Lane might say to Margolis... You know, I don't think Jim could do this or could have done this because, you know, he's not very well educated. And then Jim will chime in with, well, you don't have to be all that educated to do the crime like this. And then go on to explain why you don't have to be educated. And so you do the bank shot and then hope you get a reaction. Yeah, Roy's very good that way. They did ask some direct questions about the poisonings. Lane said they got some strange reactions. One incident really stuck with me was, I asked him, I said, did the Tylenol poisoner pick uh, extra strength Tylenol, do you think, uh, so that a child wouldn't be in there? And he broke out laughing. I mean, hysterically laughing. And it was... He goes, no, it's that joke. Don't you get it? There's something extra in the capsule. It just struck me as a little odd. It wasn't a psychotic leak, according to Lane. But they kept talking. And soon, the interviews went beyond words. So it started out, he wanted to do some drawings for us about how the person could enter the cyanide into the capsules, uh, how they could be transported, and how they could be introduced to the the bottles that were on the store shelves. Lewis started drawing, and that's when things took an interesting turn. Over the course of a couple days, he probably did five or six drawings for us. And he's, he's quite an artist. In his cell at the Metropolitan Correctional Center in downtown Chicago, Lewis made a series of these drawings. He'd then bring them to the meetings with Lane and Margolis. Lewis was clear. In a 1984 interview with the Chicago Tribune, he said he did it to help law enforcement. And he said he didn't come up with these ideas on his own. He said over the course of a week, he asked other inmates how they thought the tampering could have been done. And according to Lewis... He got a lot of ideas from them. About a dozen, he said. There were at least seven pages of drawings. We sent a public records request to the National Archives and got copies of most of them. The rest we got from sources. The pages were dated November 1983. They say they were created on speculation at the request of Jeremy D. Margolis, Assistant U.S. Attorney. Most of them fill the whole page. There's a note that says, not drawn to scale. The images are detailed and seem well thought out. Each page filled with different methods and materials the killer could have used to do the Tylenol murders. Almost like something a James Bond villain would create. They show things like funnels, sandpaper, and nail files. One page says, Capsules spiked in advance. Then Lewis writes, quote, Tools, equipment and books, acquire cyanide, design method of spiking, go to filling site, and so on. 
That page uses a flowchart. It looks like a decision tree for switching the real Tylenol with poisoned capsules and then distributing them to new stores. This is how you can transport cyanide safely. So there's a drawing of that. And then how do you carry it to the site? Then how do you exchange the uh, tablets in the bottle? One drawing is titled The Measuring Cup Method. That one details a five-step process for getting chemicals into the capsules. What was interesting about it is he was so detailed that the male part of the capsule is the only one that you have to fill that first with the cyanide. And then the female goes over that. Because if you fill the female side first, you couldn't get the male capsule into it. There's one page in particular, though, that caught Lane and Margolis' attention. To this day, Margolis still keeps a framed copy in his office. I just like that one more than the other ones. It was titled Drilled Board Method. Webb would refer to it as the breadboard method. He uh, drew a, looked like about a uh, 6 inch by 12 inch piece of plywood or board of some sort into which multiple holes were driven. In the drawing, the wood has a bunch of holes drilled into it. Each hole has one end of the capsule underneath. A large mound of cyanide put on the side of the board and then scraped across the board with a bread knife. Hence the breadboard nickname. Which would then fill the capsules. The image suggests that the knife sweeping across the board from one side to the other could spread the cyanide over the holes and push it through into the capsules underneath. The breadboard would follow Lewis for years. Because of these drawings, Lane was becoming more confident that Lewis was behind the poisonings. Even though Lewis hadn't confessed, Lane wanted to keep working Lewis. And Lewis wanted to keep up these chats too. Maybe he was hoping to spend time outside his cell, or maybe he just liked the attention. Maybe he really did believe he was smart enough to help solve it. Lewis said he would continue talking to them on one condition. He got as close to that line as he could. And the discussion got to be, he goes, I can get you further, but we need to change our agreement. Lewis wanted the FBI to promise that what he said to them wouldn't be used in court. We said no because that's tantamount to immunity. And that ended our discussion. Lane was disappointed. He was convinced Lewis was behind the poisonings. He wanted him to keep talking. And he'd find a way, eventually. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Today's episode is brought to you by Ashley Store the store that you know for their luxury pieces at accessible prices. 
But did you know that they also have a new leather collection? From sofas to recliners, these stylish premium quality leather pieces are built with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley Store, for the love of home. All told, Lane and Margolis had met with Lewis about a half a dozen times in late 1983. Now it was June 14, 1984, the day of Lewis's sentencing. It had been almost two years since the Tylenol murders, and almost eight months since Lewis was convicted of attempted extortion. It was 2 p.m. on a Thursday when he appeared in front of a judge in Chicago. His lawyer withdrew from the case after Lewis's conviction, and Lewis opted to represent himself. U.S. Attorney Dan Webb spoke for the prosecution. In sentencing, you're allowed to use anything uh, that relates to the issue of punishment. You're no longer limited by the rules of evidence as you are in a trial. Lawyers can talk about things that have not been proven. And that's what Webb did, because he was trying to show the judge that Lewis posed a threat to society and should receive a harsh punishment under the law. For a sentencing that was supposed to be about the extortion letter, he talked a lot about the Tylenol murders. Any good prosecutor would, and Dan Webb was among the best. He admitted that he lacked hard evidence pinning Lewis to the killings. But he argued that the extortion letter could be understood as a confession. He wanted the judge to give Lewis the maximum sentence, 20 years. Webb told the judge about several allegations of violent behavior in Lewis's past. He called Lewis a walking crime wave. And Lewis disputed these claims, almost point by point. Webb said Lewis had attacked his parents with an axe. This was when he had allegedly asked for the key to his stepfather's gun cabinet and was denied. Lewis responded that he had never attacked anyone. Webb said he believed Lewis murdered Raymond West. Lewis said... There was no way his fingerprints were at the crime scene. Then Webb brought up the interviews that Lewis did with the feds to reinforce his position that Lewis was potentially guilty of more than just the extortion letter. Here's an excerpt of what he said, according to the court transcript. The purpose of the interview, at least we hoped, was to establish whether Mr. Lewis was or was not the Tylenol murderer. We thought at one time he was going to make a slow confession to the Tylenol murders. Then Webb brought up the drawings, one in particular. The breadboard idea was pretty detailed, and I used it sentencing, as to how someone would have killed these seven people. And you certainly suggested sentencing that you believe that that breadboard, along with the letter, makes it likely that Lewis was the Tylenol. I don't know the exact words I used at the sentencing, but I wanted the judge to know that the person in front of him could very well have been the Tylenol killer. But we also had limited evidence of that. I've always admitted that over the years. There's no proof beyond a reasonable doubt that would justify that indictment of Lewis. So let's get back to the evidence. 
At this point in 1984, there was no hard evidence against any suspect, not against Roger Arnold, not against James Lewis, no one. When asked about the interactions, Lewis said he was just trying to help authorities when he provided them with a scenario for how the murders might have been committed. He told the Chicago Tribune at the time, I was trying to see if I could see something they had not seen because I've become quite familiar with the case. If someone asked me to describe how a reporter works, and I did it, it would not make me a reporter any more than the help I offered makes me the Tylenol killer. He denied any involvement in the poisonings. Instead, Lewis said he was implicated because of the pressure to find the Tylenol killer. They desperately crave a scapegoat, and they've got me, he told the judge. The judge agreed that there wasn't a shred of evidence presented during the trial that Lewis was guilty of the Tylenol murders. He wouldn't let Webb's allegations affect his decision for Lewis's attempted extortion sentence. In the end, the judge sentenced Lewis to 10 years for attempted extortion. He served back-to-back with his fraud convictions. Do you hear from him again while he's in prison? No. But it was just a matter of time before Lane and Lewis crossed paths again. Chapter 2. The Snitches Lewis spent time in a few facilities in different states. According to authorities, during that time... Lewis made some incriminating statements about the Tylenol murders. According to documents we've seen, five fellow inmates have told authorities that Lewis made incriminating statements to them. This has never been reported. We have the names of the five men, and we spoke with three of them. The three we spoke to confirmed some version of what law enforcement alleged that Lewis made statements to them about his alleged connection to the Tylenol murders. We reached out to Lewis to get his comment about this, but we didn't hear back. But one thing about these men, none of these allegedly damning conversations with Lewis were recorded. And so-called jailhouse snitches are usually a last resort for prosecutors. Juries do not trust them. Plus, There were ulterior motives at play. People who talk to law enforcement about fellow inmates often ask for a shorter sentence or an earlier parole. And we know two of the three we spoke with absolutely did that. In this case, we're not saying these guys are lying or that we believe them. Just that investigators think that five people in different locations are saying something similar that Lewis made statements about his alleged connection to the Tylenol murders, and that might be significant. We just want to be clear about the context here. Chapter 3. Parole. Maybe. In 1989, the Parole Commission told Lewis that he would be up for parole in just a few months, But then, they rescinded, because of some letters they had received. Jeremy Margolis, alongside the U.S. attorney at the time, Anton Volukas, wrote letters to the parole board describing Lewis as a threat to public safety 
they asked that he serve his entire term, 20 years. So the commission scheduled a hearing to decide how long Lewis should remain in prison. At the same time, they would consider something else, whether Lewis was the Tylenol killer. The two-person panel said that the preponderance of evidence indicated Lewis committed the Tylenol murders. Records show that because of that, they ordered him to stay in prison. Just to be clear here, this is huge. It meant that the panel decided it was more likely than not that Lewis had poisoned the capsules. This is a civil standard. It is a lower threshold than criminal court. Criminal court requires proof beyond a reasonable doubt. But it's the only time any government agency officially named Lewis as the probable killer. Federal records show that the commissioners listed several reasons for their decision, including the extortion letter to Johnson & Johnson, the President Reagan letter, the detailed drawings Lewis made for Margolison Lane, and Webb's statement during sentencing that Lewis came, quote, very close to making a confession in his conversations with Lane and Margolis. Lewis's attorney, Don Morano, blasted the decision. He questioned the Parole Commission's intelligence and education, and he accused the panel of railroading his client and caving into a great deal of pressure from Belukas and Margolis. But Lewis stayed in prison until 1995. Okay. I don't know. Welcome to the Cambridge Rag, and I have today Jim Lewis. Hi, Jim. When he got out, he started talking again. How are you? Jim, uh, Jim, I've been your nemesis for a couple of years, and, and you're finally on my show. Shame on you. I know, shame on me. And made statements that might come back to haunt him. But if anybody doesn't know who Jim Lewis is, uh, Jim, you were, you were eyed as the prime suspect in the Tylenol poisonings in, in uh, 1982. That's what I've heard. A new task force took up the case against Lewis. As part of that, there was an undercover FBI operation. And an aha moment that was maybe the biggest development in the Tylenol case in years. To see Lewis's drawings and a transcript of this episode, visit chicagotribune.com forward slash Tylenol murders. Unsealed, the Tylenol murders is executive produced by Will Malnati from At Will Media and Mitch Pugh from the Chicago Tribune in association with AudioChuck. Produced by Claire Ty. Jessica Glazer, and Anne-Margaret Warner. Edited by Morgan Springer. Fact-checked by Wu Dan Yan. Production support from Clementine Ford, Molly Getman, Zach Rapone, Rosie Guerin, Matt Hickey, Andrew Holtzberger, Seth Richardson, and Mark Van Hare. Mixed by Daniel Turek. Original music by Hannes Brown. Reported by us. Christy Katowski and Stacy Sinclair.
When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a Remax agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Today's episode is brought to you by Ashley Store, the store that you know for their luxury pieces at accessible prices. But did you know that they also have a new leather collection? From sofas to recliners, these stylish premium quality leather pieces are built with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley Store, for the love of home.